Good morning. My name is Tom Werner. I'm one of the elders here at Green Tree Community Church, and I'm happy to be with you virtually this morning. It's been quite a week, hasn't it? It's not what I expected when we were together last Sunday. Since then, hundreds of schools and universities have been closed. The stock market whipsawed wildly. Airplanes flew empty. Every sports league put its games on hold. Some things were difficult to get. Medical tests, toilet paper, hug from a friend, those things are all hard to come by this week. Oh, and did I mention that some people became very sick from a little thing called COVID-19. Life has changed since last week, and at least for now, there is a new normal. If you've been here for the last several weeks, you know that we've been working through a series of sermons on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes asks, is life hebel? Is life vanity? Is it meaningless? Is it like a vapor? And I think that Ecclesiastes has some wise counsel for us this morning. So let's pray together and see what the scripture has to say to us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your kindness to us in all circumstances. Help us, Lord, to worship you in spirit whether we are physically together or physically separated, to be of one mind and one heart. Thank you most of all for Jesus, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. So, I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. So, opens the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, and we can see that Ecclesiastes is beginning to wind down his case. Initially, the worldview of Ecclesiastes was entirely bleak, but each week Ecclesiastes lets in a little more light, and now Ecclesiastes pauses in his polemic. And he said, I reflected on all this, meaning he's reflecting on the first eight chapters of the book, and he draws some conclusions. So first, he says that everyone is in God's hands. Now, for Ecclesiastes, this is real progress. Ecclesiastes started off expressing the emptiness of life under the sun, meaning living life on earth, without God, and only for the moment. And he seemed to offer no alternative. Very good. Okay, I understand we lost the stream for a moment, and I'm going to rewind. And I'm going to assume that we have all prayed together and jump in from there. So I'm going to read the scripture from the first verse of Ecclesiastes 9 and dive back in. So Ecclesiastes said, 
I reflected on this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. That's the way the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes opens, and we can see that Ecclesiastes is beginning to wind down his case. That is, he's reflecting back on what's gone on in the first eight chapters, and initially the worldview of Ecclesiastes was entirely bleak, but each week has, Ecclesiastes has let in a little bit more light. So now Ecclesiastes pauses in his polemic, and he says, I reflected on all this the earlier chapters, and he draws some conclusions. First, he says that everyone is in God's hands. Now, for Ecclesiastes, this is real progress. Ecclesiastes start off expressing the emptiness of living under the sun. That's his phrase, meaning living life on this earth without God and only for the moment, and he seemed to offer no alternative. Now, he says, we are in God's hands. But Ecclesiastes always has reservations. So in the very same sentence, he says, no one knows what awaits. No one knows whether love or hate awaits them. So there is no blind optimism here. He says life is uncertain. We act like we can control life, but reality says otherwise. Today, Ecclesiastes uses both hammers and hope to make us see the world as it really is. So here is our outline. First, two hammers. Verses 2 and 3 and 5 and 6, Ecclesiastes shows us the one thing that is certain. Then verses 11 and 12, he shows us that many things are uncertain. But he offers two hopes. In Ecclesiastes 13 through 15, Ecclesiastes gives us a glimpse of the future to remind us that God breaks into life to offer hope. And Ecclesiastes then tells us what that hope means in our daily lives. So, we want to talk about our lives and how they're affected in this passage in a time of pandemic, bolstered by some history. So that's the last thing that we'll do together. So here is our sermon in a sentence. Ecclesiastes hammers us with realities that break down our shallow view of life, yet he offers us hope that it is satisfying, that life is satisfying, even in the greatest of uncertainties. So, are you ready to dive in? Ecclesiastes 9, verse 2, hammer 1, there is one thing that is certain. Ecclesiastes says, all share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not, as it is with the good, so with the sinful, as it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all, for the living know that they will die but the dead know nothing. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. So hammer number one, Ecclesiastes tells us that under the sun, one thing is certain. 
Death comes to all. And it doesn't matter your status in life. It doesn't matter if you are righteous or wicked, if you're good or bad. Your moral standing does not save you from death. It does not matter if you are ritually clean or ritually unclean, if you're someone who offers sacrifices or not, if you're someone who takes oaths or is afraid to take them, your religious standing does not make a difference. And though I may acknowledge intellectually that I will die one day, of course many years from now, but in actuality I live as if my death, the one thing that absolutely will happen, will not happen. Ecclesiastes says, get real. Face facts. Deal with your death because it is certain. I'm reading an excellent little book titled On Death by Tim Keller, the longtime pastor of a large Presbyterian church in downtown New York City. Keller argues that of all the generations of history, we are the most inclined not to grapple with the certainty of death. <clears throat> and he says that based on a couple things. He says, first of all, in prior generations, death came with scarcely a moment's notice. Women died in childbirth. Children contracted a fever and died in days or even hours. Men drowned in rivers. They died from kicks from horses. They were caught up in machinery and they were gone. And people were laid out on a table where the family ate dinner. Death was ever present. Keller says, one reason for our failure to grapple with death is the blessing of modern medicine. We have dramatically reduced the causes of early death. It is normal to live to adulthood. People decline in old age and they die in nursing homes away from the eyes of others. So Ecclesiastes urges us Face facts, you are under a death sentence. Now here's hammer number two. Many things that we think are uncertain, are certain, are uncertain. So, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. In the NIV translation I just read, we read, time and chance happen to them all. But the original might be better translated, time and happenings happen to all. So do happenings happen to us all? I think so. Happenings certainly happened this week, didn't they? Should we be surprised? No, Ecclesiastes says, that is the nature of life. But God is not surprised, and remember, he's told us early on that we are in God's hands. So Ecclesiastes says that races do not necessarily go to the swift. Battles are not always run, won by the strong. And fine dining is not always enjoyed by the smartest guys in the room. But generally, I have to tell you that the way I think about my daily life is the opposite extreme from the way I think about my death. I said earlier 
that I live as if the one thing that absolutely will happen, which is death, will never happen. And those things that are uncertain in life, those I treat as certainties. So Ecclesiastes tells us again, see both death and now life as they really are. So hammer number one, that which we want to hold at arm's length, death is certain. Hammer number two, that which we treat as certainty, those things are uncertain. Now this morning, it's my pleasure to take you on a brief excursion to one of the world's great art museums. Of course, some of you have been around a while. Art, of course, I love it. And it speaks to me. Last fall, Susan and I went to a uh, museum in London, the British National Gallery, and there, hanging in close proximity, just down the hall from one another, are two paintings that I love and want to share with you. And these two paintings illustrate the thoughts of Ecclesiastes. One of these paintings hammers the unwise. And the other painting gives us hope. Now this is a painting by the Dutch master Rembrandt. The subject is a biblical one, the Feast of Belshazzar, from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Belshazzar was king of the Babylonian Empire, the mightiest national power to that point in history. And Israel was among the nations conquered by the Babylonians. Belshazzar decided to give a great banquet and invite a few close friends who also happened to be the most powerful people in the kingdom, and there were just only about a thousand of them. And we can think of him looking forward to this great night with wonderful anticipation, counting down the days, only three more days before the big event, only two days before, tomorrow night, oh, this is going to be so great. But God breaks in to Belshazzar's dinner and into Belshazzar's life in a way that is unexpected and unpleasant. In the middle of the evening, there came a strange interruption in the celebration, and the moment is captured in Rembrandt's painting. To his horror, Belshazzar beheld a hand writing on the wall behind him in a script that he could not read. The Bible says that the king was terrified, and he turned pale, and his knees began to knock. We see him there standing, arrested from his dinner, his girth, great girth looming over the table, and his eyes are popping in terror. The king sent for the Jewish prophet Daniel to translate the writing, and Daniel told the king that the writing in Hebrew meant, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. This night your life will be required of you. So, Belshazzar, enjoy your party, because by tomorrow you will be gone. So we have this account in Daniel, and there is also an account by a Greek historian named Herodotus who wrote the history of some of the ancient leaders, and he says that that night the Persians, under their great king Cyrus, conquered Babylon, when the Persians diverted the Euphrates River, which flowed through the city of Babylon. 
and the Persians marched in on the dry riverbed. And I'm going to quote Herodotus here, while the Babylonians knew nothing of what had chanced, there's that word again, but as they were engaged in a festival, they continued dancing and reveling until they learned about their capture. Isn't that peculiar? So you have these two accounts, one by Daniel, the Jewish prophet, and the other by Herodotus, and they both talk about the same thing, which was a great party. I wonder whose party it could have been that night. But Belshazzar was not around to see what happened next. The great city was destroyed, and nothing that Belshazzar had, not his money or his army or his secure city or anything else was sufficient to keep death at bay for even one day. Rembrandt and Ecclesiastes both agree that here is the very picture of a fool. All his life, Belshazzar had taken pleasure in all that the creation had to offer. He had taken for granted that the party would go on forever, and now in his final hours, he had to acknowledge that he had misunderstood both life and death. Hammer, hammer, the certainty of death and the uncertainty of life. But fortunately, that is not the end of the story because Ecclesiastes also offers us two hopes. So the first hope is of the resurrection. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that man. Now here is an abrupt change in the writing of Ecclesiastes in both style and content. Ecclesiastes moves from poetry on the uncertainties of life to a short story with what seems to be a sad ending. The story starts off well. It is the story of a man who was poor but wise, and he saved many people. But as all things done under the sun, Ecclesiastes' story ends badly as the man who saved the city was forgotten. Too bad, isn't it? How can there be any hope here? So let me ask you, if I were to ask you to name a man who was poor but wise and who saved a great many people, who might you name? For those of you at home, I'm giving you five seconds. Many people see in this Old Testament story a real hero who is prefigured and foreshadowed in this story, a man who is well-remembered today. So to see hope in this story, we have to understand an important principle of Old Testament interpretation. To do that, I'm going to take you to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and I'm going to read a peculiar story. The Sunday after the crucifixion of Jesus, two disciples of Jesus set off walking from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus. Along the way, a third man joined them, and as they walked, the newcomer asked the two why they were so downcast. They explained that they had put their hopes in Jesus, and this is what they said about him. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, 
and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They said about Jesus that he was wise as a prophet. They may have gone on to say that Jesus was poor, which he certainly was. But at this point, they say he was certainly in danger of being forgotten. Another would-be wise man now on the ash heap of history. But their new companion reassured them. He, that is the new companion, said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now we know that the new companion is Jesus. And we should stop for just a moment, pause to appreciate what an outrageous claim is being made here. Jesus claims to be the subject of the Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. I want you to suppose that this afternoon we finished the worship service, Susan and I have gone home for lunch and over our ham sandwiches, I say to Susan, honey, I've been thinking about the Bible. And I think that scriptures, well, they're all about me. She would be perfectly right to think I was loopy, right? That is the kind of statement, the kind of claim that Jesus is making, that he is the subject of the Old Testament scriptures. So how can this be? Well, Jesus is present in the Old Testament in several ways. First, Jesus was shown to the people of Israel through prophecies. We read Old Testament prophecies that say that there would be a Messiah who would come from the lineage of David, who would be born in Bethlehem, he would minister in Galilee, he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, he would suffer painful death and abandonment by God, he would arise victorious and sit in God's place of honor. Now, all of those things are prophesied in the Old Testament, and they are fulfilled in the New Testament. So, people could get a glimpse of who this Messiah Jesus would be. In addition to prophecies, there are what we call types or signs, which are essentially analogies, which point to a Messiah still to come, who would fulfill the hopes of the Old Testament writers. So here are a couple of examples. Example number one, the sacrifice of animals such as lambs or rams or goats in the Old Testament pointed to the once for all time sacrifice of a Messiah, which would be sufficient to pay the cost of all sins committed by all humankind. Another example, the prophets, priests, and kings were all called to be mediators between God and humanity. Every one of those mediators was imperfect and mortal, and thus they pointed to a Messiah, Messiah Jesus, who was an eternal and perfect prophet, priest, and king. So, to the extent the people of Israel believed these prophecies, and they placed their hopes in these types, those analogies, they believed in the coming of Jesus. So, on the road, the stranger talked with the two disciples about the scriptures and how Jesus was the fulfillment of those scriptures. 
And I think it's likely that as he talked, he talked about himself in the passage of Ecclesiastes that we read this morning. But the two still did not recognize their com companion, that is, until they reached an inn in the town of Emmaus where they took a meal. This brings us to our second painting just down the hall from Belshazzar's feast. So Luke expresses this moment when they recognized that they were sitting with the risen Christ. He said when he was at the table with them, he, that is Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So here the disciples finally understand that they have been walking with the risen Lord. God has broken in and affirmed that death is not the end and that a disciple of Christ who trusts God for salvation also shares in the resurrection with Christ. I want to pause for just a minute because I really like this painting and I want you to see a couple things. So first of all, the innkeeper is standing alongside the table and he's not surprised. He doesn't really understand what's going on, that there is a dead man walking seated at his table. But the two disciples thrust out their arm in surprise. And they are so surprised, in fact, that they knock over a basket of fruit in the front, which is going to tumble into our space. And so we want to reach out there and put that basket back. Now, the man in the middle at the table, of course, is Jesus. And I want you to look at him and see what it is that's different about him. Come on, band. What's different? He has no... He has no piercings. He has no beard. Isn't that surprising? So... No wonder they didn't rec recognize him, but the res this is what Caravaggio says in his painting, but the resurrected Christ is not beaten, he's not emaciated, he doesn't have scars on him. In fact, he is full-faced as a healthy man, and youthful, he has no beard. And so we see here a resurrected Christ who is young and vital. And as they recognize him, they throw out their arms in surprise. They can see now before them what Ecclesiastes could only see darkly. The whole of humanity depends on a poor, wise man who gave his life so that others could live and is resurrected and so will never be forgotten. Hope number two. Ecclesiastes says this. Go, eat your food with gladness. And drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. I think this is the heart of what Ecclesiastes has to say. By the work of the wise and poor man on the cross, and then in resurrection, we are approved by God. And our sins are forgiven. And because we are approved by God, we live lives of meaning. The things that were just hevel, that were meaningless, where vanity are now important and fulfilling. So here's what he goes on to say. Always be clothed in white. And always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of the meaningless life. He just can't give it up, can he? All the days of your meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labors under the sun, Whatever your 
hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Here we see that death teaches us the meaning of life. Living in the light of your death will help you to live wisely and generously and passionately. So, whatever you are of a mind to do, do it and enjoy it. Wear festive clothing. I love this picture. So, clothed in white in the days of Ecclesiastes meant be ready for a celebration. And these guys, I love these Irish guys, they are clothed for a celebration, aren't they? So go do it. Put on your funny green outfit and go to a party. Go on a picnic with your life, with your wife, <laughs> whom you love. See the Grand Canyon. Make a meal for a neighbor. Call your parents. Make music. Hug your children. Live life passionately because you have dealt with death and you are free from the constraints that death plays, puts, puts on us. So let's talk about our time and how we can apply what we've read in Ecclesiastes this morning. So here are some applications. So the first one is faith's death, for death is certain. It's possible that we have people this morning I would suspect we do, that we have people who do not wish to face death. If you were to die unexpectedly, do you know whether you would be approved by God? If not, there are people here who would love to talk with you. Let us know, and we would be glad to arrange a conversation with someone so that you can be confident of your relationship with God. Secondly, acknowledge the uncertainties of life. Many of us would like to think that we have the formula for success, but a week like this past one demonstrates that confidence in self is misplaced. Third, God has assured us that in Jesus, death is conquered for those who live by faith. So we've gone over this in very much in a hurry today. Again, let us know if you'd like to talk more. And then finally, if you have faced your death, God approves you and enjoy all that God has given you. So this, I'd like to make a somewhat of a transition. So we've talked this morning about what we read in Ecclesiastes in some degree of specificity, but also more generally. And before we close, I'd like us to know that life in the time of a pandemic is not new. In fact, the early Christians have given us a model for life in this kind of time. I want to read you an account of the early Christians in pandemics in the early years of the Roman Empire and the early years of Christianity. It's, this is from a book by a guy named John Ortberg. The name of the, death, uh, of, the, of the book is Who Is This Man? And I'd like to talk about the history of those Christians in that time. So, I wouldn't normally read this long, but I think it's applicable for us. In Rome... Around 165 A.D., an epidemic killed somewhere between a third and a fourth of the population, including the emperor. A little less than a century later came a second epidemic in which at its height 5,000 people every day were dying in the city of Rome alone. 
For the most part, people responded in panic. I'm going to read you from two ancient historians who described what was happening. They died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any intention for care. The bodies of the dying were heaped up on top of one another. No fear of law or God of man had a restraining influence. The second historian says, at the first onset of the disease, they, the people who were living, pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But there was in that world a community that remembered they followed a man who would touch lepers while they were unclean and who told his disciples to go heal the sick. Dionysius, a third century bishop of Alexandria, wrote about their actions during the plagues. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And of course, Christians died, for they were infected by others with the disease drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and they died for their neighbors. As Christian communities responded to the sick, even outsiders took notice. By the late fourth century, an opponent of the faith, an emperor that's been known as Julian the Apostate, chastised his own pagan priests for not keeping up. I think that when the poor were neglected and overlooked by our priests, the Christians observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. The Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. So I'm going to ask Tom to come forward. I, I, I really, as I read this, reread it this week, I had two questions that came to mind, which I'm going to pose to Tom. Does our present circumstance perhaps allow a certain opportunity, chance for God to work in ways that we haven't thought of? That's the first question. And the second question is, what could it have been that motivated these early Christians to respond as they did to those who were sick around them? What can we learn from those early Christians? Thank you, Thomas. We got some good, at least one good Tom here this morning. Uh, what a tremendous word. I appreciate it so much. Um, not to take too much time, but I think your questions uh, are excellent because they're application questions. Uh, and we always want to ask uh, after our time in the Word of God, whether it's by ourselves in our own devotional time or whether it's uh, in corporate worship, the so what question. What does this mean for my life? What does this mean uh, as far as my relationship with the Lord Jesus? And so your first thought, your first question is, is there an opportunity here for uh, God to work, uh, perhaps in ways that, that haven't uh, been um, happening in recent time? And I think the obvious answer is, is yes. Uh, you said earlier in your sermon, God is not surprised by any of this. And I think we have to remember that, that in our, you know, changing moment by moment, day by day, uh, Tom and I were actually talking on the phone uh, Friday, and uh, I said, are you aware of the latest update? And he said, well, I, I know what was happening on Wednesday. Uh, I said, well, that's all changed in the last 25 minutes. Uh, and so we are surprised. Uh, we find ourselves kind of learning as we go, and yet we must remember that God 
is not surprised uh, that he is always working uh, his will. And so uh, I think in, in some respects, uh, now that the, the spigot of distraction has been shut off, uh, now that there are very few things uh, to, uh, to use our time in pursuing as far as things that would help us to focus on this life, uh, and not on maybe the more significant things. Now, now that those things are not a distraction, uh, I believe that it's a great opportunity for us to have conversations, conversations with friends, conversations with family members, just asking, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? Uh, for those who uh, have not yet dealt with death, as, as Tom uh, so wisely instructed us out of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, there has to be fear, there has to be anxiety, uh, there has to be a lot of concern uh, because if I'm living just for this temporal life, whatever may interrupt that or harm that uh, is going to get my attention and it's going to keep my attention. So I believe that we uh, should take advantage uh, of the opportunity to just simply have conversations uh, and to ask folks, uh, how are you dealing uh, with your concerns? How are you dealing with your fears? And in that context, uh, have the opportunity to, to share the gospel, uh, to take the opportunity to pray for uh, those uh, who perhaps don't know the Lord Jesus. Uh, the obvious question, or the obvious answer, I should say, is, is God working? Yes, he's working. The, the follow-up question is, uh, to what extent can we be involved uh, in, that, in that process? How can we be used uh, by God? And I, I appreciated the example uh, Tom gave you shared it with me prior to the, the service this morning uh, of the Christians in Rome. And if you look at any human tragedy along the way since the early church, uh, where there were any Christians in the neighborhood, so to speak, you always see believers running to the battle, running to uh, the problem, running to uh, whatever it may be, whether, whether it's a physical issue or a, uh, an issue of uh, needing financial aid and support, needing medical support, wherever the need is greatest. That's typically where we have found generation after generation of Christians uh, moving in to help. So the question is, uh, will we mimic those generations that have come before us? Will we follow the Lord Jesus uh, into this situation? Now, clearly the world is different. Uh, the medical advances that we enjoy in this country, uh, I believe, are, are going to service as, as well as they possibly can. Uh, we don't know what the future holds, uh, but, but it, it is somewhat so far unlike ancient Rome where, where people were literally dying by the thousands on a regular basis. But that doesn't mean uh, that more suffering won't come. And so the question is, what will those who are free from death's restraints, to again quote my brother Tom Warner, how will we approach those opportunities? Will we approach them with wisdom? Uh, will we approach them with a settled heart, knowing that we belong to the Lord Jesus, knowing that uh, we are following a man who, as, as we heard earlier, touched lepers uh, when they were still in their disease, but we also follow a man who talks about the, the day of judgment in Matthew 25 as one who's going to separate his, his flock. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Uh, he's going to look uh, at, at the differences and make the separation. And when those who are, who are chosen by him to enter into fellowship with him are surprised as to why he would bless them, 
He said, uh, when I was hurting, you were there for me. Uh, when I was in prison, you came and visited me. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you came and visited me. And I believe therein lies the opportunity for Christians today, that we would follow Jesus into a hurting and a broken world, enter into a world that typically isn't very fearful. Uh, the, the culture and the community of the United States doesn't typically live uh, with fear uh, and with uncertainty. We, we try to remove that from our lives. We try to make things as certain as we possibly can. And yet at this moment, uh, uncertainty does reign uh, and fear is everywhere. Will we be uh, a witness for the Lord Jesus in this moment? Will we go to those who are hurting on whatever level they may be hurting? They may never catch this disease, this, this uh, pandemic, but it may be that, that their hearts are shaking, their, their minds are unsettled because they haven't dealt with the deeper questions of life. So is God working? God is absolutely working. The question is, will we follow him into that work? Will we join him uh, in caring for one another and caring for the world around us in whatever way uh, that he uh, provides that opportunity for us to serve him uh, by serving others? Uh, the way we're going to begin our service, uh, not our worship service, but our time of serving one another is we're going to spend some time in prayer this morning before we, we close out. We're going to have an opportunity to, to sing and, and join our voices and worship once again. But for the next few moments, uh, I'm going to lead us in a directed prayer, and I'm going to just mention uh, a handful of things for which we can be praying. You can certainly uh, add your uh, things to the list, and then at the end of that time, uh, I'll close our time uh, of prayer out with a corporate prayer, and then uh, again, we will have the opportunity to praise God uh, through worship and song. Will you pray with me? Let's begin our, our prayer time this morning uh, by praying uh, for uh, our leaders and for leaders everywhere, uh, whether they're at the national level or state or community level, praying that they would have great wisdom and understanding uh, in dealing with this issue. As we think about our region and the, the neighborhoods and the, the families in which we live, uh, as we pray for our community, uh, let's begin by praying for the elderly, uh, for those who have uh, compromised health, uh, to pray for uh, the preservation of, of their health, but also uh, if they are living in an extended care facility now, those, those are being quarantined off, and, and to pray uh, for the, the loneliness that they may be feeling at this time.
Let's also pray for our healthcare workers, for uh, those who may be in contact uh, with this virus. Pray for, for their health, for their, for their judgment, for their patience uh, as they deal with a, a very pressurized situation. In any uh, situation like this, those who are most vulnerable, uh, the poor, uh, the uninsured, the isolated, uh, let us not only pray for them this morning, but let's remember uh, to be mindful of how we could care for them uh, throughout this time. pray for our children, uh, whether they be little bitty ones or whether they be uh, middle school, high school, or college students in this time of uncertainty uh, for them uh, as they uh, experience something of difficulty perhaps for the very first time and the, the fears and the concerns that they may have as well. Let's, let's pray for our children. We pray for our children. Let's also pray for our parents, uh, decisions that, that need to be made uh, in caring uh, for our children. It uh, can be a bit confusing and challenging right now, so let's, let's pray for our parents. And finally this morning, uh, let's pray. Let's pray for ourselves, uh, wisdom in our, in our general conduct with one another, strength to overcome fear, hope that we would know with confidence how our future is secured, uh, and big hearts to serve our families, our, our neighbors, and those around us.
Father, we give you praise and glory and worship this morning. Along with uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, we uh, acknowledge that this life can feel meaningless, can, can feel frightening, and, and can seem as we would be tempted to simply say, well, what's the use? And yet, Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the deeper message that is alluded to and the promise that, that was going to come through the Lord Jesus, uh, who was perhaps a, a poor man who, who uh, the fellows on the road to Emmaus thought that he, where he's going to be forgotten, and yet here we are 2,000 years later living in, in his grace and in his mercy. So, Father, in this moment where we feel the challenge of, of fearfulness, where we feel of the uncertainty of the moment, we pray that your Holy Spirit and your, your word that we, uh, uh, we heard this morning would be applied to our lives, that your spirit would teach us, uh, that your spirit would enable us to rest in the, the truth of your word, but also, Lord, that your spirit would empower us to, uh, to go and to be active and to care for and to love others well. Father, may we live in, in the light of eternity uh, as we follow Jesus, knowing uh, that our hope is secure and knowing that whatever uh, awaits us this side of heaven, that we can trust in you, that we can rest in you, and that we can follow the Lord Jesus in confidence uh, wherever he would lead us. We thank you for this reassuring word, Lord, and we pray that you would apply it to our lives uh, throughout this coming week. We pray in Jesus' name.